You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 29th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, a Hong Kong court orders beleaguered Chinese property giant Evergrande to wind up. The US has vowed to respond after three of their soldiers were killed by a drone operated by suspected Iran-backed militants. But could miscalculation spark a wider conflict? Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney unveils her plan for better engagement with African nations, but will it stop illegal migration as she hopes? Plus, our senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco is here to go through the international papers. Hello, Vini. Today we'll be talking about the elections in El Salvador this coming weekend, carnival nudity in Brazil and smoking in films. Well, all that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. First, when China Evergrande defaulted on its debts two years ago, it sent shockwaves through financial markets. It's stumbled on since, but today the Chinese property giant has been ordered to liquidate by a court in Hong Kong. Judge Linda Chan said enough is enough after the troubled developer repeatedly failed to come up with a plan to restructure its debts of more than 300 billion US dollars. Rebecca Chung-Wilkins is Asian government and economy correspondent for Bloomberg News. She joins us now from Hong Kong. Rebecca, thank you. Uh, Firstly, what did the court say uh, fully in Hong Kong uh, and why did they take this decision? Well, ultimately, this has come after quite a few delays and quite a few opportunities provided by uh, Judge Linda Chan, who's presided over this long sort of ongoing process. And, and she basically said that they've had plenty of chances to restructure and provide a restructuring proposal, which is really the alternative to liquidation. Uh, Evergrande hasn't been able to muster anything up that looks like that. And so liquidation is the only way forward. And what actually went wrong with this company that, for anyone that's not aware of it? Well, Evergrande really was one of the sort of biggest um, victims of a very sweeping crackdown that Beijing started to roll out on the property sector, really actually back in 2019 uh, through to 2020. uh, And it defaulted first, for the first time ever, back in 2021, actually. Um, So it's a very sort of long-standing crisis. But the broader context is essentially that Beijing is trying to change the growth model in China. It wants to move away from a debt field model of growth, one which is sort of dependent on property sector, building a lot of infrastructure, building a lot of apartments to something that's more sustainable uh, and and away from from this um, sort of quite debt laden economy. Um, And so part of that was about reforming the property sector, introducing very strict rules on on debt, um, which companies like Evergrande struggle to meet because that model really depends constantly on this cycle of borrowing in order to buy land and build more projects. And the way that properties are purchased in China is quite different. People put down pretty big deposits off plan. Uh, So there's real ramifications, isn't there, for hundreds of thousands of people for this company struggling so much? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and this actually goes not just to sort of to Evergrande properties, of which there are many, many, many scattered across uh, all of China, but actually to lots of different property developers. We've seen record defaults from property developers across sort of large ones like Evergrande and smaller ones too. And the biggest risk for Beijing from a social unrest point of view is this question of unfinished homes. Lots of people, as you say, actually buy uh, their homes and start paying mortgages on properties that are unfinished. And so we even have seen these sort of sporadic, for example, boycotts on making mortgage payments because property developers like Evergrande have really struggled to actually complete these projects. And so they have gone uh, left unfinished for actually nearly two or three years in some cases now. And the order doesn't apply to the Chinese mainland. It seems just Hong Kong at the moment. But how will it affect the company uh, in the next few weeks and days? Well, listen, so this is the really big issue when it comes to Evergrande and and what this liquidation order actually means. So the bulk of Evergrande's assets that can be liquidated are, of course, in mainland China. That is where the bulk of its property developments are. Um, And so this liquidation is uh, applied to Hong Kong. But the big question is whether or not the mainland Chinese courts are going to recognize this decision. If they don't recognize this decision and they don't allow the liquidator in Hong Kong, who incidentally is the same liquidator that handled the Lehman uh, crisis all those years ago. If those mainland Chinese courts don't allow this, then it's going to be very, very hard to actually uh, get hold of assets that can try and sort of not necessarily make investors whole, but at least try and start to recompense them on some of the losses that they're owed. And just stepping back, I mean, is this a sort of first big test for how you know, corporately wise, Hong Kong's uh, judiciary interacts with mainland China, given uh, the changes in the relationship between the two over the past few years? Yeah, I think the big sort of question is really about whether we get this cross recognition. I'm not sure if it's entirely a sort of political question per se, although this is being very closely eyed, because just by a sheer coincidence, and very curiously today in Hong Kong, there is another law that actually comes into effect, which is about uh, um, civil and commercial cases being mutually recognized in Hong Kong and mainland China. So when you have the same court cases that apply to the same set of assets and companies, effectively, those requirements, and that, that could be recognized in either a Hong Kong court or a Chinese court, vice versa. And that's being very closely watched. I mean, critics say that this sort of breaks down another barrier between Hong Kong and mainland China means that, for example, if you have Hong Kong assets, those could be vulnerable to a a court order in the mainland. But, you know, its defendants will say that potentially this actually makes it easier for um, some corporates who are embarking on cases a bit like the one that Evergrande is, where its creditors are mainly offshore, in this case here, who are trying to get hold of assets that they believe they have a right to in the mainland. And China has been struggling uh, with its recovery since the pandemic. There's been some alarming uh, economic data coming out recently, a general slowdown. Do you think the government is going to step in now to stabilise Evergrande and the market? Well, the property crisis has really been at the heart of that slowdown, economically speaking, and also this sort of crisis in confidence because property makes up such a big component, historically such a big driver of GDP in China, somewhere between 20 and 30 percent. And so moving away from that, trying to find an alternative has been really difficult. Now, we have seen uh, Beijing suddenly stepping up their measures to support financial markets, um, particularly equity markets. Now, Chinese equities, both those 
is listed, Chinese equities listed in Hong Kong and uh, onshore Chinese equities have had three years of losses. So this story actually is quite a long protracted story of a slow moving meltdown. It's been particularly painful for retail investors in China. So, you know, if you're if you're sort of the average middle class person in China, your two aspirations are probably one to buy a home or maybe two or three homes as an investment and also to buy Chinese stocks. Now, both you see both of these sort of big assets that you have falling in value. And that has sort of weakened the broader confidence in China, which makes it really difficult to get people spending again and to get consumption going, which is really what the Chinese government is relying on to try and kickstart growth. So we're seeing Beijing stepping in with more effort. We have potentially this plan, mulling a plan of about 2 trillion yuan to support uh, essentially getting offshore state institutions to buy shares and try and boost some of those prices, stabilize some of those prices. We've had a ban on short selling. So these sort of interventions, market interventions that we've seen sometimes uh, Beijing does lean on, but quite a flurry of these. whether or not the rally that we've seen sort of over the last couple of days can sustain is really a big question. Investors are hoping that Beijing now finally sort of is starting to recognize the urgency and the need to boost markets. But it's worth sort of bearing in mind that in general, Beijing has been quite reticent to introduce high level big bazooka stimulus. And and just, you know, uh, last month in, uh, sorry, earlier this month in Davos, we had, you know, very top officials affirming this message not to expect big bazooka-style stimulus because, according Mm. to them, they say China has achieved this 5% GDP target without that. Without that. Rebecca, thank you. That was Bloomberg's Rebecca Chong-Wilkins. Now here's Emma Searle with today's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. Foreign ministers from the Association of Southeast Asian Nations met on Monday for their first meeting since Laos took over the bloc's rotating chairmanship. Growing Chinese assertiveness in the South China Sea and fighting in Myanmar between rebel groups and the military junta were top of the agenda. French farmers are preparing to descend on Paris as part of an ongoing protest over pay and living conditions. A series of concessions by Emmanuel Macron's government on Friday failed to prevent this week's escalation. It follows similar protests by agricultural workers in other European countries, including Germany and Poland. And Japan's lunar spacecraft has regained power after it ran out of electricity due to a problem with its solar batteries. The Japanese space agency was forced to power down the probe shortly after it landed on the moon earlier this month. It will now gather data on the geology of the lunar surface. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Emma. Three U.S. soldiers have been killed and 34 were injured in the living quarters of an American base in Jordan near the Syrian border over the weekend. The U.S. is accusing Iran-backed militia of being behind the attack carried out by a drone. President Biden has vowed that the U.S. will respond in time. Iran has denied involvement, but some Republicans are calling for sweeping retaliatory attacks as a deterrent. Sanam Vakil is a director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. Sanam, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what more do we know about how these attacks were carried out? Thank you for having me. Uh, well, the attacks um, have been part of uh, a growing pattern of escalation across the region. Um, and Iran-backed fighters um, in uh, Syria and Iraq have been 
uh, hitting um, American um, troops. Uh, and this is the first time um, that uh, a large drone um, targeted a logistics support base um, in Jordan known as Tower 2022, excuse me, um, that is on the Syrian-Jordanian border and is used to, to provide assistance and advisory uh, for U.S. forces in the region. And is it surprising this attack was successful? Did this base not have the kind of defences it needed? Well, it's surprising that um, the sort of uh, air defences failed and that the drone got through. Um, There has been, since October 7th, over 150 attacks by Iran-backed forces in the region uh, targeting uh, U.S. forces. So um, this wasn't a question of if, it was a question of when, and the when has finally happened. And, and the U.S. has always made it clear that their red line in, in the region is um, injury and physical harm and death of U.S. forces. And, and this is where we stand right now. And how certain are we that it was Iran-backed rebels? Well, uh, the U.S. and intelligence have uh, made it very clear. The president of the United States, uh, Joe Biden, has also come out and made it very clear that Iran is behind these um, this attack in particular. Um, and interestingly, uh, the Islamic Republic has also denied responsibility and, and also tried to make clear um, that uh, these groups across the region, while receiving Iranian support, have their own agency. And so they're trying to message very clearly that they don't seek broader escalation. And, I mean, these drones are being used uh, to attack U.S. troops. They're obviously being used in the Red Sea as well. They're being sold to the likes of Ukraine, uh, of, to Russia to use in Ukraine. Do you think we could see some kind of strike on the kind of uh, manufacturing plants in Iran where they make these drones? Well, certainly uh, that is one option. And I think um, uh, the United States uh, might be looking at Iranian infrastructure and, and trying to take out Uh, some of these facilities. What's interesting is that um, what Iran has done, though, is transfer a lot of this technology to groups in the region um, in a way um, to take the onus off of them. Um, This is also what they've done uh, with Russia. They have built drone facilities um, in uh, Russian territory to avoid uh, direct attack on Iran. Um, and there was an attack on an Iran, Iranian drone facility uh, in 2022, for example. And how dangerous a moment is it, uh, given the danger of overreaction sparking a wider conflict? Or is that something that maybe Iran is trying to now provoke? Uh, well, of course, it's a dangerous moment um, when, where and how the U.S. responds um, will we'll send some clear messages. I fully expect um, a more significant U.S. response, and, and it might not just um, be directed to, towards targets in Iraq and Syria. Uh, they could try to interdict um, Iranian ships or, or reinforce uh, sanctions oversight that has um, be- become a bit lax um, as part of a side agreement um, they have with the Islamic Republic on its nuclear program. Um, but The United States, uh, despite pressure in this election year, is also not looking uh, to um, wade into a wider regional conflict. Um, And this is something that uh, both Iran and Iranian-backed groups know. Um, In fact, most of the region is looking uh, to de-escalate. And and this is why 
the, the imperative is the U.S. send a very strong message, um, but um, manage and balance that message also with back channeling um, and diplomacy. Um, and also, of course, above all, uh, to think about drawing down uh, the conflict um, and pressuring Israel for a ceasefire in Gaza. And you've just touched on it there. This is, of course, an election year. Is there a danger that this could be co-opted into something like Benghazi was back in 2016 uh, to use against uh, Joe Biden? Absolutely. Um, Republicans um, are always uh, very hawkish on Iran. Uh, You will remember that Donald Trump uh, withdrew from the Iran nuclear agreement in 2018 and um, led a very hawkish Iran policy. That policy, although wasn't very, very much followed with a lot of muscle. Uh, but Iran is a toxic asset in Washington, and it's easy to toss um, the political football of Iran policy around. What we haven't seen from Democrats or Republicans, though, as, as a longtime Iran watcher, is a very uh, deliberate, consistent Iran strategy that tries to address longstanding tensions with Iran, but also tries to roll back the influence um, and embedded nature of these groups across the region. That requires coordination, consistency, and bipartisan engagement. Sanam Vakil, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni is announcing her grand plan for Italy and Africa today as she strives to position her country at the forefront of European cooperation on the African continent in return for curbing illegal migration. The so-called Mattei plan, named after Enrico Mattei, the founder of the oil giant Inai, will be presented in Rome to a host of leaders from Africa and Europe, including the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Gustavo de Cavallo is a senior researcher in African governance and diplomacy at the South African Institute of International Affairs. Gustavo, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what exactly is in this plan? Uh, Thank you very much. And and what we have seen now from from the Italian government is really a push to first, I think, to bring Africa to the forefront of some of the Italian uh, uh, foreign policies and particularly having this intrinsic link between increasing of investments, particularly in the energy sector, as a means to uh, improve development, as a means to improve the economies and in a way, in the long run, having that linkage of reducing illegal migration into Europe. Uh, What we have seen, I think, from the Italian side, I think there is an important narrative in terms of highlighting and focusing on the idea of equal partnerships. It's still uncertain what will be the capacity of the Italian government really to implement that, considering that the funds allocated to the implementation of the Mattei plan Uh, as of now, are quite small. We're still talking about 3 million euros on an annual basis. But certainly from a narrative and discourse perspective, I think it is an important shift and an important focus in ensuring there is a more equal engagement and a less patronizing way in which uh, European countries are engaging with Africa. And why has Maloney decided Italy should take the point on this for Europe? 
It certainly has been something we've seen since the beginning of her term as uh, uh, in the government of Italy to to promote economic growth. And, and we've seen the speeches happening now in Rome, all of them complementing the role of Italy, but also the, the role that the European Union can play within that. Uh, Migration has been uh, quite an important concern for the Italian government and particularly for Meloni's government. Uh, and in a way, promoting a new narrative, I think, is an important way. But once again, still many questions in terms of how will that really be implemented and how can we move beyond this idea of promises that very often are not really fulfilled when we see in terms of this uh, African engagement with global powers. And France has had a torrid time in terms of diplomacy on the African continent in recent months. Does Italy have a better chance or will it too be blighted by its history? It's still a question that many of us within the African continent are asking ourselves. I think from a narrative point of view is an important step. I think it will depend very much on how that is implemented, both within the implementation of the Mate plan, but I think from the Italian case also how Italy will implement its own strategy for its presidency of the G7 in 2024. So in, in a way, uh, I think there is probably now more questions than answers, especially considering that we've seen some of these approaches before. We saw that with Germany, for instance, in 2018, when they spoke a lot about the idea of an African Marshall Plan that didn't really yield the results that were presented and promised. So uh, on, on the one hand, there is some interesting narratives presented, but it's still very difficult to know until we start seeing the implementation on the ground. And the feeling from the other side, from African nations, are there any of them that have been particularly receptive to this? Uh, and what is it that they would need to do in return to stop the flow of migrants? Uh, I, I think there has been a, a degree of cynicism within the African continent, especially considering that we have seen so many of those summits happening uh, on an annual basis, both from countries like China, Russia, the US, the, the European Union have done uh, those annual summits with them. So I think there is uh, a kind of an approach of wait and see. I think from civil society point of view and some of the governments, there is also a degree of skepticism, considering the fact that a lot of the plans and ideas uh, are related not to clean energy, but rather to uh, hydrocarbons or gas and oil and showcasing the uh, uh, energy deficiency that Europe currently has. So one thing is to state that we are creating more opportunities for a real partnership between Africa and countries like Italy. The other thing which is probably much harder to do is how do we really implement this idea of an intense renewed cooperation? And, 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 and there is a major risk for Italy in that sense, because if they're not really able to implement many of those very ambitious promises that they are presenting, it really creates a sour taste in terms of what its European partners can actually deliver in a moment where many African governments are really focusing on the idea of economic growth and integration within the continent, especially through the African continental free trade area. Uh, so, so, so in a way, it's important to really that the Italian government has in mind what need, how the implementation will be done in a way that it's respectful and in equal terms with African counterparts. 
And finally, how critical is it for the EU to act to stop growing Chinese and Russian influence across Africa? Uh, I think part of the challenge is the very narrative that the role of the European Union is to counter what Russia and China is doing. I think for many within the continent, they are raising concerns that the increased attention and interest in Africa is not really focusing on Africa itself, but rather as a proxy on a much broader global uh, uh, geopolitical dispute of, of countries like China and, and, and Russia to a large degree. So I think part of the, 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 the challenge that European countries and the European Union itself face and will continue facing is the idea of this interest in Africa being a genuine one, not one of utilizing the continent as a proxy. But I think it does if you do provide uh, important mechanisms for investments and growth both in terms of, I think, the Mate plan, still very small as we've seen for now, but I think uh, more uh, opportunities, especially with the European Union Global Gateway, I think that more naturally and organically will strengthen the engagements between African European countries in a way that moves beyond geopolitical disputes and really promotes and provide efforts that really uh, uh, focus on growth. And I think this is something that it's, uh, we heard this morning uh, in Rome, a lot of talk about win-win uh, uh, partnerships and engagements that when Africa prosper, Europe prospers. But we do need to see a much more genuine type of engagement on that to make sure that there is no backlash or uh, a sense of frustration from both counterparts. Gustavo de Cavallio, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And finally, on today's show, it's time to flick through the international newspapers. And I'm pleased to say our senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, is with me in the studio now. Fernando, what's caught your eye? Well, let's start in El Salvador, uh, which they're voting, they're having an election at this coming Sunday. Uh, and, and, and Vinny, I have to say, I was struggling to find, you know, newspapers from El Salvador. But from my sources, I looked at El Faro, which is one of the few investigative journalism outlets uh, there in the country. And there's some interesting stories. Of course, Naibi Bukele, he's set to win uh, re-election. And, and, but there are a lot of concerns in the country about human rights. Uh, and, for example, the main story of El Faro this morning saying they're accusing the government of conspiring with other gang leaders to arrest another gang leader. So they're saying basically that the reason why crime fell in El Salvador quite drastically in a way. And that's why he said to win the re-election is because of those agreements uh, with the government, with, with with the gangs. So they effectively entered the gang warfare and played them against each other. In a way. and But I also, at the same time that we have all those concerns about human rights, it's quite understandable that he sat to win so comfortably uh, the election again. Because just look at the numbers. Uh, last year, uh, El Salvador had 2.4 homicides for every 100,000 people. That's one of the lowest numbers in Latin America. And if I, I believe it's more or less the same numbers as Canada, which is a very safe country. And just a few years ago, it used to be 103 uh, homicides per 100,000 people. So that's drastic. Mm. Uh, 
But, you know, it's an interesting one. And some people are saying, can this be repeated uh, to other Latin American countries, which also have huge uh, problems with crime? And some people see Bukele as this, you know, the guy that can actually can fix uh, things. But we should never forget about the human rights. And perhaps El Faro could be a good place to start if you want to read up a bit mm. more about El Salvador. And the other thing with El Salvador as well that many people know from the last couple of years is that Bukele went hugely into cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. He was, you know, made it sort of a legal tender. He was going to have a volcano that powered, powered a new Bitcoin city and some wild stuff here. How's all that working out? Yeah, I think that didn't work out as... as uh, I don't think people vote... Yeah, <laughs> I think his, uh, his fight against crime, probably that's going to be the main reason. But yeah, the crypto thing, from the last things I've been reading, it didn't, yeah, it didn't really didn't. catch okay. among us Salvadorians. Mm, bet. <laughs> okay, and turning uh, to uh, Rio now, your home city, uh, what's going on there? Well, it's my second home city, my, uh, Sao Paulo, but Globo. Very interesting story here. Uh, of course, Carnival starts next Friday, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of, lot of stories about it. Uh, and they have a, a huge page. I even, I, I'm giving you some props yeah, here as well. Yeah, we've got some colourful costumes, they, but uh, definitely some body parts on show. A lot of body parts, because it's the history of nudity in the 40 years of the Samba Drome, which is the place where all the Samba schools in Rio go. And it's an interesting historic look uh, about how nudity is used uh, at the Samba Drome. So, for example, they're saying that in the late 80s, in the late 90s, everything was quite, there were a lot of freedom there. There were a lot of kind of nudity. Uh, and, and, you know, it was a time that Brazil was opening up post-military dictatorship. Mm-hmm. There's even a picture here, I mean, it's funny, of Jorge Lafon. He was completely naked, except there was an orange orange pompon uh, in, in his <laughs> genitals. Uh, but actually, after this um, samba school, I think there was some restrictions to nudity on, on, the, on the big samba drum. So now you can't be completely naked. So it's quite interesting. So at the same time that perhaps Brazil became more diverse with more equal rights for the LGBT community and other stuff, mm-hmm. there are more restrictions to nudity as well. Uh, and, and, and I think that's fascinating. Uh, I think you can look at Brazil's mores looking at the samba drum. So it's a great, great piece uh, from O Globo there. And what are your thoughts on it? Should the carnival allow this? Is it, is it slightly an attempt to maybe sanitize it for foreign visitors or for TV broadcast or what is, it, what is it? There are a lot of sanitizing going on and you're very right because the TV broadcast is an important part of it. Uh, even though it's very late in the evening. So in my opinion, bring back nudity, just be free as long as you have a lovely costume. Just some pixelation happy. ready to go. Exactly, maybe. exactly. Yeah. I mean, we have to talk to the producers and editors. I'm sure they'll have time to do that. Okay. Um, and uh, another story that's caught your eye uh, from The Times. Yes, uh, very interesting story because I wrote a piece on how uh, two years ago about how smoking in cinema is decli- was declining, even in France. And this is not smoking in cinema specifically, no. this is yes. on in movies. Yes. yes, thank you for clarifying, that's very true. Uh, but apparently 2023 is reversing that. So uh, apparently 2023 has been a banner year uh, for smoking on the big screen. And again... In the, in the films, in the big productions. Mm. Of course, sometimes it's for historical reasons. If just it's a period piece, like Oppenheimer, or Oppenheimer, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But also, I think a film that we were discussing this morning, like Saltburn, mm. I mean, it's not quite a historic film there, but there's a lot of smoking. And one of the reasons, because there's been many articles about this on The Telegraph, on Vanity Fair, because less people are smoking now and there's more restrictions to it. We can see it with the British government trying to ban it as well. Mm. It's becoming 
rare, it's becoming a taboo, it's becoming transgressive again. So of course cinema is going to capitalize on that. So in a weird way, we have more restrictions, but it might become cool again. Uh, and there are a lot of campaigners against that, but you know, I think there's still a little bit of charm. Uh, but yeah, controversial here. Mm. Faye, thank you. That was Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Emma Searle. Our researcher was Nyoma Aikwe, and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time with me, Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye, and thank you for listening. 